The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody here tonight. So every once in a while, it's really useful, I think, as a group to take the time and to ask that question that we may not want to ask because it's a little embarrassing to ask ourselves because, like in my case, I've been practicing now for 33 years and pretty much every day, I mean, there are a few exceptions, but mostly every day I've practiced over those 33 years, but still, and I'm guessing it's not uncommon for you to have the same thought or same feeling. There are times in the middle of a sit, beginning of a sit, at the end of a sit, what was that about? Or what was I doing? Or what is this practice? (laughs) What are we doing? (laughs) So it's useful, and I was saying this morning in the talk for the Sunday morning group, that uh, you know one of the shadows of the situation we're all in, where these teachings about meditation are now very available. And there are so many different approaches. We've heard so, most of us have heard so many different instructions that the shadow is that we get confused. Like, cause there are different ways to practice. And in Buddhism, we call those different ways skillful means. So, and, you know, and another, at another era, there might have been just one teacher in the village. And it doesn't matter how she or he taught, that would be the only place we could learn. And so we would just do what we were told and we'd learn whatever we'd learn. But these days, there are a lot of teachings and teachers to tune into. And the, like I said, the shadow is to dabble, to do something, even within one set, to do something, direct the mind in one way or and then it gets difficult or it gets boring, so we try something else, and then, and we're just sort of flitting about. And you see how that also ties into many aspects of our culture, which seems, in some ways at least, to become, partly because of just information technology, becoming more superficial, sort of more about dabbling. And we just know so much more. I mean, when I, interact with younger adults now, you know, and I always thought of myself as a smart person and connected to the world, but, you know, young people, young adults, I think they know a lot more than certainly I did at the time I was their age. So, but the the shadow of that is that we don't, there always feels like there's something to do, something to learn, and we're less likely just to settle and sink in, soak in, rest, relax, right in the middle of things. And we tend to be averse even, or certainly suspicious about what's ordinary, because it seems that what's actually valuable is something that's extraordinary. It has to be special, unique, promising great things before it's worthy of our attention. And in this practice, we're interested in what's ordinary. So, 
I think it would be good today. It'd be nice to hear from a lot of you and, uh, and just to reflect on what is it that we do when we sit and meditate? And there are a few values or a few things that no matter the particular skillful means or meditative technique that you've been working with, there are a few things in this style of practice that we can bank on. Like, if it doesn't have something to do with the present moment, you're probably missing the point. And, you know, we could be like thinking about how important mindfulness is, but and thinking about how much I want to become a more mindful person in my life. But if we keep that value of here and now, we see that thinking about mindfulness has nothing to do with here and now. It involves a concept of me, an idea of me who's mindful, maybe a fear of me not being mindful, this idea of wanting this, not wanting that. But being lost in those thoughts, those concepts, is a disconnect from what's here and now. Because in terms of here and now, that's just a thought, just mental activity that's being known. So all the techniques, if they're doing their job, whatever the skillful means, whatever you picked up along the way, if it's orienting the knowing mind to the reality of, oh, this is here and now, it's like this here and now, then it's a useful technique. But if it's taking the mind into proliferation, then it's not helpful. And again, even the most seemingly uh, relevant topics, if it's just leading to more thought, then they're not useful. Thinking about freedom is not the same as immediately, directly in the moment, reflecting on either the experience of freedom or the experience of being bound up. That's so much more relevant than thinking about freedom. Now, there is a place for thought. Skillful thoughts are thoughts that direct the knowing mind to the present moment. And unskillful thoughts, you could say, are thoughts that direct the mind toward more thinking. So it's not that thinking is bad. It's that thinking that leads to endless proliferation is unhelpful in terms of this practice, in terms of having insight, deepening understanding of the nature of the mind or the way it is. So, our meditation, when we formally sit down, which is really just the way to learn how to practice all day long, we're just simplifying the conditions when we formally meditate, and we're more easily learning some of the basics, some of the basic lessons, so that when we're practicing in the more complicated moments of our daily life, We're just going to have more success. So it has something to do with the present moment. And another uh, quality of practice, regardless of the technique that you can bank on, that you can trust, is it has to have something to do with relaxation. Because all of the obsessive qualities of the mind, you know, when the mind's proliferating in an unhelpful way, 
even if they're really, even if it's a really pleasant proliferation, fantasizing about something that's pleasant, it's stressful. The mind gets bound up or tight. Oh, that's so nice, or that's so scary, or whatever it is. So, it has something to do with the present moment, and it has something to do with peeling away the layers of armor, of the ways that our thoughts or ideas defend ourselves from the present moment. Not necessarily consciously, but unconsciously, we don't really trust the present moment. I mean, even now, like, isn't it true that there's some basic presumption that this isn't it? You know, we're all here to be happy or to get something, and we're arrogantly certain that this isn't it. Does anybody think this is it? And we don't even bother to look or settle in because we're so sure this isn't it, that I have to practice before it could be it. Or I have to have some kind of profound insight, like being struck by lightning. And there should be, you know, something, some telltale sign that will tell me when it's getting close to it. So we're, you know, out of habit, we're deeply conditioned to reject this because we're certain that this isn't it. So that's why relaxation is such a useful um, quality to orient our practice around because it's an affront. Relaxing, settling, is an affront from all of that habit energy about getting somewhere, becoming somebody, running away from something. Especially like when we're picking up a technique like breathing in, feeling the whole body, breathing out, feeling the whole body. It just seems like, I don't know too many things, but this isn't it. Because it seems so boring, right? Or hard, like just to be with the breath. So we assume like it's hard to be with the breath because it's not relevant. And of course, the breath isn't any more relevant than anything else is. But what's really relevant is having to put down all the habit energy that tells us thinking about Monday is it, or worrying about what happened earlier today is it. So in order to be with the breath, I have to put that stuff down. And that surprisingly feels life-threatening. To put down our plans and our worries and our hopes and our fears, and just to be simply with the breath as it comes in, and the whole body as the breath comes in, and the whole body as the breath goes out, It feels like being defenseless and giving up on our belief that there's gold out there. If I just get myself there, there's gold. So it's powerful to remember to relax and that it's something that's here and now. You probably have heard this story, but it's funny and it's, I think, instructive in the Sufi tradition, which I'm not exactly sure the history, but at least people I respect talk about Sufism, this mystical tradition in Islam. Part of it, part of the roots of that was this intersection of Islam and Buddhism. Some of you know that Islam, as it spread, it spread places like Afghanistan, what is now Afghanistan and Turkey and northern India, which were 
uh, before that spreading of Islam were all Buddhist areas. And uh, so in this very rich interaction, and of course destructive interaction, uh, Sufism was born in the 13th century thereabouts. And uh, some really beautiful expressions. And one is this, not clear if it's actually a historical character or not, but a person named Nasiruddin, kind of the wild wisdom side of things, funny wisdom side of things. A lot of funny stories told about this character. And one is that uh, he was out looking for something he had lost and searching around, searching around. And eventually some of his neighbors came out and said, you know, would you lose? Where'd you lose it? And... and um, and he started explaining and he said, well, why are you searching here if you didn't lose it here? You know, because he said, no, I lost it over there. Why are you looking here? He said, well, there's a good street lamp here. <laughs> and it's a little bit like we're so used to being in the world of our thoughts that when we're looking for a solution to our anxiety or to the, the sense that this isn't it or this isn't enough, we go to our thoughts because that's the ground, that's the, you know, the activity we're really familiar with. And what we're not familiar with is putting that down and having a more immediate and direct experiencing of body and mind. So thought is just thoughts, sensations just sensations. That's unknown territory and we tend to avoid it. It's a little bit like the wilderness and we're comfortable in our nice village <coughs> and, uh, you know, we have all these sort of preconceived ideas that we've learned culturally. There are monsters out in the woods. And so I'm just going to stay in my familiar territory. And we fill it up. We listen to the media. We talk to our friends. We text. We stay in this world of our stories. So, you know, we have many techniques. We have one of the primary avenues for practice is to be aware of the body because it's relatively concrete and to bring the attention to the body, especially in a wholehearted way, the thinking mind can't be obsessive and be intimately present with the body. You just can't do two things at once. So if there's a wholehearted, mindful awareness of the body, then the mind is not mindful of whatever ideas I have about myself, I have about the world, I have about you, that has to cease. And so the mind, when I have some continuity of awareness with the body, I also have freedom from the obsessive habits of the mind to be attached to the projections of my thoughts. I'm good, I'm bad, the world's good, the world's bad, or whatever complicated or otherwise ideas we have that literally ceases for a while and the mind experiences freedom from those obsessive tendencies. Now, if we're not feeling that when we're with the body, it's because we're not wholehearted enough. We don't have enough confidence to really give ourselves to this very simple technique. And of course, there are many different techniques. You can use awareness of hearing, whole body awareness, just feeling the particular sensations of the breath. You can use mantra. I mean, there's this initial stage of practice where we're learning to let go of the world. There are many different techniques, but you have to dig in with one 
So you're training your mind to let go of everything. And instead of saying, let go, let go, let go, you just give yourself. It's really an act of love. You know, we give ourselves to something ordinary and trustworthy like being present with the body, being present with walking, being present with knitting, being present with breathing in or breathing out or hearing. Not in order to think about those things, but it's got to be a continuity, right? So it's not enough to be intimate with the body in a moment. It's all about sustaining that intimacy. And very quickly, if you have some continuity, you be, the mind, the awareness begins to experience freedom from mental construction, from the concepts we have. And normally, our normal reality is the reality of being imprisoned by our concepts of things. So, for example, and this is not unusual, you know, I don't feel good enough. And so when I'm up here, for example, in front of a group of people, even though mostly I have to really be present with the thread of meaning of the talk I'm giving, there's just enough distractedness, right? Lack of absorption in the content of what I'm saying to sustain insecurity, right? It's just there in the background, just enough space in the mind so that habit of being frightened or insecure is still active. This should be familiar. But when I'm really just in the giving of the talk, then I get really high because for a while I'm not an insecure little boy wondering what people think, right? And it's the same with any activity. If we're there 100% fully, some of you play music, right? Good musicians, good athletes, good artists, good parents, good lovers, good people know how to give themselves completely to whatever they're doing in that moment. And not only do they do that activity wholeheartedly, but they come alive because they put everything else down in order to do that one thing 100%. So in meditation practice, that's the first stage, is to learn how to put everything down. And generally, two things really support that. One is feeling safe, you know, so finding a time, a place, a way to sit, where you feel safe. And the other is, and related of course, is the mind finds what it's being asked to pay attention to interesting or even pleasant. That's why if you can just uh, get ahead of steam, what actually happens, like just let's just take mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of body sensations because that's often the kind of instructions you get when you come to common ground. So let's say breathing in, feeling whole body, breathing out, feeling the whole body, and you're somehow you think, I'm going to follow these instructions. You really give yourself to them. And so when you're breathing in, the awareness is attuned to the sensations of the body sitting. Although the awareness of the body sitting has nothing to do with that concept, right? So like when I say body sensations, body sensations aren't that thought, body sensations. That's the hardness, softness, the vibration, the tingling, the lightness, or whatever you feel in your body, that's the body. 
It's not a concept. Body sensations have nothing to do with concept. It's the direct warmth or coolness, the directness, immediacy of the sensation. So when we're there and we start having some continuity being with the changing sensations of the body, then after a while of continuity, what begins to be most relevant in the present moment isn't the changing nature of hardness, softness, tingling, warmth, coolness, or whatever you're feeling in the body. But the most relevant experience is that the mind is present in this wholehearted way. So it becomes pleasant, not because the body is pleasant, but because the quality of the mind is really wholesome. The concentration or the samadhi itself is beautiful, blissful. So the more you get continuity, and it doesn't matter what the object is, it can even be knee pain. So initially, let's say, you can't really be with the body because the knee pain saying, honey, pay attention to me. So you do, right? Because that's the predominant sensation. You open to the body, but it's like the knee pain's right here, and the rest of the sensations are sort of in the periphery, right? But you've got some confidence in your practice. So breathing in, feeling the body, which is mostly knee pain. Breathing out, feeling the body, which is mostly knee pain. And you stick with it. Feeling the knee pain, the throbbing, the aching, the twisting, the burning. Not your thoughts, why is my knee hurting? Why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. That's not knee pain. That's thoughts. And that's hating knee pain, right? Or afraid of knee pain. Or, But it's not knee pain. So you're there with the knee pain. Well, eventually, the quality of awareness is wholehearted. It's continuous. It's 100%. And the wholesomeness of that quality of awareness actually becomes, in a sense, the bigger object, the bigger experience than the knee pain itself, even if the knee pain is really intense. But the concentration sort of moves in, and when you look at the present moment, the big thing in the present moment is the beauty of a concentrated mind, even though the means to that concentration, that stability, was knee pain. And then it's really pleasant. And then it's relatively easy to sustain the concentration because looking, being aware, relaxing, accepting, being continuous with something that's beautiful is relatively easy. Initially, it wasn't easy to be stable and continuous with knee pain, but you sort of break through the threshold and then it's relatively easy. And some of you know this experience, and when we open it up in just a few minutes, it'd be really nice to hear from a number of people about different how you practice, what you've learned works and doesn't work, and then some of your experiences of dropping the world of this and that and good and bad in me and you and entering this world of continuity of present moment awareness and beginning to notice the unification of the mind, like the mind is coming together in the knowing of the present moment. And that unification, or what we call samadhi, concentration, itself supports the continuity of the concentration. It's like a positive feedback loop. In the same way, when we're struggling with the knee pain or struggling with a disturbing thought, the trying to control it reinforces 
the instability of the concentration, right? And we get more and more restless, more and more uneasy, and we just want to get up and leave because the sit feels so unproductive. And it is, in a sense, not helping. Of course, it doesn't help to stop. What helps is to start over. Okay, whatever I'm doing is not working. So take a deep breath. Remember, there's just a body and a mind here sitting. Can that be okay? So just start over. Okay, and there's sensations. Well, can I open to these sensations? Breathing in, feeling the body just as it is. And if the body is not, like if the mind is unwilling to be sensitive to the body because it's uncomfortable, too painful, then maybe work with hearing. Give your mind an object that it's willing to open with, open to rather. And then I'll just mention one last thing before opening it up. So when you get some stability, that's a good definition of concentration, stability or a stable, beautiful, happy, clear, no agenda, so equanimous mind. Then that's the mind that can better understand what the mind is. So then we do more formally what we call Vipassana, wisdom practice, insight practice, because now we're using that stability. Of course, we needed a lot of wisdom just to get there. Like, I don't really need to plan that right now. That's wisdom. I'm just going to come back to the body. But then once we get some stability, then we, in a sense, we just let go. And we let that clarity and that balance and that stability simply notice what comes, what, in a sense, presents itself in the space of awareness. Okay, now this is being known. It feels like this. Can that be okay? And now the next object, it might be a memory, it might be a sensation, it might be the pleasantness of a concentrated mind. But whatever it is, moment by moment, something is being known. And whatever is being known has a feeling. And the mind, the wisdom in the mind is understanding, okay, this is being known, can this be okay? So in that very subtle, stable way, the mind is learning how to let everything be what it is. And that's another way of saying learning how to be free. But in this very unique way where the mind is in a refined place, we're learning, I can just let life be. I can let life happen. And we learn it in a very subtle way. And then later, when we're back in the world, when it's not so subtle, we try to take those insights like, I can radically trust whatever's happening, whatever comes, including I can radically trust this personality. doesn't mean I'll be skillful. It means that if there is unskillfulness, I'll see it. The mind, wisdom will see it. And we'll go from there. We'll learn from that. But we're just learning to let it all be a natural process. Life. But we have to learn it in the safe way that we get when the mind is stable. Okay, so just kind of in a rough way, giving the terrain of our sitting. It'd be nice to hear from people now. And most of you know we have this beautiful donation. And it's a directional mic. So you have to hold it close to your mouth and have it aimed right at your mouth, not like this. So if you have a comment or a question, a little sharing from what you've learned in your practice, just raise your hand and I'll pass the mic. You want to pass it over to Doug? Hi, my name is Doug. And it's pretty incredible that you just had this talk because that's exactly 
what came to me during the sit tonight. Um, that you referred earlier to a, a lightning bolt, you know, or something. And a lot of you have been sitting for a long time, so you probably, you know, had this, this has occurred to you, but it just now occurred to me that there is a difference <laughs> between being aware and thinking. And I didn't know what that experience, you know, I had that experience just now tonight, and then you went and talked about it. That's the incredible part. But I didn't know what to call that experience. And now you told me, though, that that is called it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Buddhism, we call it Dhamma or Dharma. So when you hear that word, casually, it means the teachings of the Buddha, but a more technical, useful term or definition of Dhamma or Dharma so Dhamma is Pali and Dharma is the Sanskrit version, is the way it is, or it. So the way it is, not conceptually what we think it is, but the immediacy of the nature of this, or it. That's Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. So that, that was the distinct feeling that I had, is that this is not thinking. No, this is simply you know being aware. And it seemed like a revelation, you know, at the time. So uh, thank you, though, for talking about it. Yeah. And we can only open to Dhamma, or the Dharma, the way it is, when, to some degree, greed, anger, delusion, and the proliferating thinking mind has retreated. Now, there may be thoughts, but the thoughts are in alignment with being aware of things as they are. Like, can this be okay? That's a thought. But that thought would be useful in that moment, like basically saying, honey, you don't need to mess with this, just let it be. Right? That could be a skillful thought in that moment, like, just let it be, let things happen. Because the knowing, the awareness, we don't have to do it. The awareness is just there, it's like the background of the mind. Nobody, but we think, oh, I gotta be mindful. But mostly when we say, I gotta be mindful, it's a sort of a misunderstanding of what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is more about what the mind is not doing than what the mind is doing. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Other thoughts that come to mind? All the way at the other end. Thanks, Nick. <clears throat> and Marta, maybe the light's a little bit brighter so people can see better. It's okay. nice to say your name. Oh, yeah. It's Jesse. Um, I just was wondering if you could comment on a sort of technique that, an approach that I use in sits. Um, and I guess in shorter sits, I don't try to be ambitious or like have a technique that I use. It's just about coming to the breath because I feel like not a lot else is going to probably get done in 15 minutes or half hour than focus on the breath. But in like an hour sit, I think I'll, I like try to, I strive for something more, I don't know. I guess, I don't know if it's ambitious, but it's like, I sort of do like this neurosis scan where I begin with like a loving kindness practice for myself where it's like, okay, I wish these things for myself. And then maybe there's going to be a couple people that I know I'm going to see in a day, like today or whatever. And maybe I'll wish loving kindness for them. I'll go through the technique. And then maybe it's like five Thich Nhat Hanh, like breathing exercises, excuse me, that I've heard before. And then I'll just kind of run through those. And it's almost like a quick check-in to see where I am with a sit. But then it's, 
always trying to come back to the breath, I guess, after that. And do you feel like that, because obviously there's a lot of, like, thinking is not a problem. For me, there's always plenty of thoughts. So it's always, the sit is, the goal is always to sort of evacuate thought for me. And I was wondering what you think about that. Like, if it's okay, I guess, at the end to come to a place where you are aware of your breath, but you're not really welcoming thought. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it goes back to this point about relaxation, because there are a lot of meditation techniques to uh, either a small or a large degree um, involve some kind of control or some kind of judgment. And... uh we just want to be really aware of the underlying motivation and the underlying point of view that's behind the meditation we're doing. So that's why it's it's really nice to know, like, why am I bringing my attention to my breath? Why why do we do that, or why do I want to get rid of thoughts? And you might find, well, I just want I just want a pleasant half an hour, and my thoughts are bothering me. And it's so much nicer when they're not there. And that may be true, but in a way we're cultivating aversion to what is a natural process. Thinking is a natural process. And to be reinforcing the idea that thoughts are like mosquitoes, you know, given that we're going to be thinking for a long time, that's a bit of a setup. So we we want to understand like why we're doing what we're doing. And what we're really interested, like, I think if we reflect deeply enough, we know, I, what I'm doing is I want to be free. I'm interested in suffering in order to realize the experience of non-suffering, non-stress, right? So that means that our practice is really about deepening understanding, like, how do I get bound up? How do I experience freedom from being bound up? So that's what I would remember, that even when you're doing something like retreating from your thoughts, trying to get some space from your thoughts, it's not seen as an end in itself. It's just like, right now, I just need some space. I need some freedom so that I can better understand how my mind seems so oppressive sometimes. So that everything we're doing is in the context of deepening understanding. And that's really what distinguishes some of, like the Buddhist teachings from some of the other meditative, contemplative techniques out there is the Buddha, you know, in his diagnosis of what's wrong with us human beings, it's that our understanding, our, our perception of what this is, is wrong. So we need the, the whole idea of calm isn't an end in itself to be calm. It's to use the calm to better understand how it is that the mind gets bound up and how it can be free. So it's good to remember that at the beginning and at the end of the set. Okay, I'm using different techniques in order to have enough stability, enough balance of mind to see how it is that suffering arises, how things get all tight and how things get released from that tightness. That's what we mean by insight. We've learned something about how the heart or mind gets bound up, or something about how the heart and mind becomes unbound. That's what we mean by a good set. 
not just that we've had a really pleasant go, because some people, <clears throat> just because of the particular conditions of their mind, they have a lot of pleasant sits, like they take up meditation and they get relatively calm and peaceful, but they never learn anything. And other people have a lot of unpleasantness when they're sitting. But over time, gradually, they learn a lot about their mind and how to be free no matter what's going on in them or around them. Well, that's what I'd like, right? I'd like to develop a lot of wisdom so that my mind, my heart, is free no matter what kind of things are getting triggered in me and what kind of things are happening around me. Because then I don't have to be anywhere else in order to be free. I can be free no matter what you trigger in me. You can make me defensive or insecure. And I'll wisdom in the mind will understand, well, that's just that feeling. right? And it won't react. It won't pick it up and construct a me who's insecure, who doesn't want to be insecure and doesn't want anybody to know I'm insecure. right? doesn't do any of that because there's wisdom. And when death comes, the mind doesn't have a problem with that. I mean, that's what wisdom, wisdom by definition from this point of view, wisdom is that quality of the mind that can allow things to be the way that they are. It doesn't have a problem with things being the way that they are. So we always want to put our techniques or our practices in that context. Understanding that when we're overwhelmed by life, a lot of, just to be honest, a lot of what we want is we just want a vacation from our stress, right? Basically, we want a good nap sitting up, which is why people often get into the habit of going into a trance state that is pleasant and uh, relatively relaxing and not unwholesome, but if it becomes the habit, like some of you have been practicing for years, you really want to be on the lookout because you can, the mind can get in that habit and then it's really hard to break the habit. And as soon as you sit, it's like the mind drops into this place and it's relatively pleasant, it's relatively stable, and it's like a good nap, but the mind never learns anything in that place. So year after year, you're getting some refreshment, or day after day, you're getting some refreshment but there's no wisdom slowly, gradually developing. So then when you're back in your life and somebody triggers you, you can be just as thrown around by the sort of reactive patterns that you were when you were a teenager because they still seem so personal because you haven't actually seen that they're not personal. It's just stuff happening. But it's not enough to hear that it's just stuff happening. If it were, we'd be done because we've all heard that. Yeah, why are you so reactive? It's just stuff. Now, we've all heard that, but then when it happens, it feels so personal. So we actually have to see it with that stable, clear mind over and over again until the mind really gets it. It's just a natural process. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. Other thoughts? Raise your hand if you have thoughts you'd like to share or questions. <laughs> Somebody get the exercise. Yeah, hi, my name is Robert, and um, I just thought of a question when you were sharing just now, Mark. Um, I guess when I sit, there's a lot of unpleasant, whether it's anger, sadness, hatred, etc., and um, and then I ask, can this be okay? And a lot of times the answer is like, kind of. 
and then it's like, can that be okay? And, 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 and sometimes there's like some, some like progress with it and more okayness with it. And then you talked about, uh, then being able to interact with people more easily because, uh, I'm ready to deal with the feelings that come up. And I guess I've been thinking about that lately and, 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 and it seems, it just feels like it's still really hard to do it interpersonally. I'm ready to do it within my own safety of my sit in my room. And then when somebody else brings it up and it's right in that moment, it's, I'm, I'm not ready to be as skillful. And I imagine that the more I sit, uh, and, and can really say like a true, like, yes, this can be okay, that, that, that will allow me to be more ready to do, to deal with it interpersonally. But how about like right where I'm at now and then I'm having these interactions, do you have like thoughts or advice or anything about like that kind of like process, that transition, that learning in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate how you explained your process, Robert, because I think most of us can relate to it and it's really honest and it really demonstrates how clear your mind is about that, like kind of is the truthful answer. And it's different when we're relatively safe in the quiet of our room meditating and we're out in the world. It really is different. And, you know, you can just ask yourself, like when it's not okay, like let's assume that you're there and somebody triggers some emotion and in a sense you're doing what you do in your sit and you ask, well, can this be okay? And the answer is a very clear no. No, this is not okay. I, and there's a very strong compulsion to react to the unpleasantness of the emotion that's gotten triggered. And it might set in, some, set in motion something really unskillful. Like, cause if you react, then the other person might react and the whole thing can, uh, expand. So, you know, in a sense, uh, of course, this is going to happen very quickly, but the mind, like if we could slow it down, would say, well, what, what do you need to be safe? You know, given that you're feeling what you're feeling, what can be done so you feel safe? Well, maybe if you weren't with this person right now, you could handle the intensity of what you're feeling better. Okay, how can I skillfully get out of this, move toward a more safe environment? Or maybe, maybe what we can say is, uh, to the person, boy, I'm feeling a lot right now and I don't want to be unskillful. I think I have to go. You know, or it's really hard right now for me. You know, it's like what we hear if you ever take a class on like wholesome interactions, they always say use I statements. So instead of saying, hey, you're really bothering me, you know, I'm feeling a lot of pain and it's because of what you said, we say, we put an I statement, you know, I'm feeling a lot right now. There's a lot of pain in my body and my heart. And uh, I don't really know what to do with it. So I need a little space. Now, some people, you can actually say something like that to them. And then the neat thing about the way our mind works is later, when you're feeling you've got some space, you're back home or whatever, we can use our imagination and we can practice now bringing it up with our imagination. Okay, that person, the situation was like this and then I said that and she said this and then I felt that, and then you can, then you can go back to what you said earlier. Well, can that be okay? Because now, and you gain the confidence, like, yeah, it can be okay. And that transition is going to be hard, 
but it sounds like you're doing exactly the right thing. You work with it where you feel safe, and then you do just the best you can when you're out in the world. And then in hind, then you reflect on it in hindsight. So the Buddha says this very clearly. He says, before it happens, you reflect on it. Like, you know you might see that person today. And then just knowing that may trigger it. And then you can ask, or can that be okay? This is in the morning, hours before you see them. And then while they're there and they're causing you to react, you work with it. And then after, right? So we're learning, we're practicing being skillful. And then even when we're not skillful and we're reacting with anger, let's say, or closing down or whatever we do, then we notice that. Well, can that be okay? Can we forgive ourselves for having been so unskillful in that moment? Yeah, I can because now with some space in my mind, I realize that was unavoidable. Given everything that was at play in that moment, it couldn't have been other than what it was. The mind, the heart, the body, it was just as skillful as it could be in that moment. So we make peace with it, even when we're unskillful. Maybe not in the moment, but then later in hindsight. So just because we so-called blew it and we weren't that skillful, we can continue to process it after the fact by bringing it to mind. So mindfulness, we're being mindful of the memory of it. And of course, the memory is triggering a lot of the same emotions. And we're being mindful of those unpleasant, usually, emotions in the same way. And we have to have, even though that whole process that Robert described, it's messy, but it's so useful. And you see how different this kind of work is than often what we imagine meditation is just about retreating from the chaos into a calm, pleasant place. And a lot of the meditation, especially in popular culture now, is that style. And that is very useful to some degree. So I'm not putting it down at all. But remember that the calm that we get in meditation practice is so we can do the work you described with more skill. Because the more stability we have, there's more fearlessness. Because the mind is stable, it's willing to look more deeply at the causes for the reactivity and tolerate more intense discomfort. Well, can that be okay? And the answer will be more often, yes, if there's a lot of samadhi, a lot of stableness. Thanks for sharing. What else comes to mind? Sharings from your own practice or questions you might have? Yeah, Tim. So for uh, for my practice, just uh, to, to do that part, um, I normally do uh, like a combination of object-oriented and then open awareness practice. And the, the object, I kind of commit ahead of time. And more often than not, it's like the sensation of breath. But sometimes it's like, you know, if I'm on retreat, sometimes I will choose for a sit for the object to be thought, like to, you know, to try to be present with the thought and the absence of thought and to see it without judgment. Um, or sometimes when I'm walking, I make it sight and just see if I can be, have an objective, you know, take on, on seeing things. Um, and then, but one thing that you, you said tonight that it seemed really relevant to some practicing I've been doing recently is, uh, you know, I, I've, I have, uh, been trying, well, I, for a while I've been trying to, to do this thing of like knowing the knowing 
like making the knowing mind the object of awareness, which is something I've heard you talk about before and other Dharma teachers talk about before. And it just like, it just confounded me for the longest time. It's like, like, is this, am I, is what I'm knowing right now, the knowing mind, or is this a thought or like, am I doing it right? You know, it just was always, it just didn't make sense. And then, um, actually in a moment when I wasn't like formally practicing, but I was just trying to be mindful in a day, you know, sometime during my day, I was really, really anxious and I was having all these kind of like automatic anxious thoughts. And, and I realized that I could, I could know that, ang- that those anxious thoughts with anxiety, like I could, I could, the knowing could be colored by anxiety. I could like, you know, wonder if they were going to go away, worry about the anxious thoughts. I could, I could know them with anger and try to push them away and be frustrated that, that they were there. Um, or, or, you know, at times it's possible to know them in a way that's totally objective. And then, and that if, it's um, amazingly if I can if I can make the focus that that calm objective knowing even if the object is something anxious, it's it's like the 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 knowledge of that objective knowing kind of fills up my brain. I don't know if I articulated that in a very coherent way, but what you were saying tonight uh, really clicked with me about that in terms of you know you can you can fill your mind with with something that is uh, you know you're talking about the knee pain. You know, you can, you can be looking at something that is itself unpleasant, but if the way you're looking at it is objective and calm, that can kind of fill up your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it may be good to tease out the two ways that that happens. One is when there's a lot of samadhi and the mind is really stable and the pleasantness of that stability is a counterweight to the unpleasantness of the object, like the anxiety that you were talking about, Tim. But the other, and this is more the way you were talking about it, is wisdom can also be the counterweight. And one of the ways that wisdom can be talked about is the way that Tim was talking about it, which is, and again, there is no perfect way to, or every way you talk about it is slightly imperfect. But this is being known. So instead of the object being the focus, that it's being known is the focus. You see, because when we remember, like right now, we're all having an experience. Now, when we bring to mind that this experience of hearing Mark or seeing Mark or seeing the crowd or understanding the words, when we bring to mind that this is just an experience that's being known, you can't have that recognition without right view coming into the mind. Because what it happens, when I realize that this is just something being known, it like, and you, I don't know if you have the sense, but it pulls the rug out of the story of a me who's at Common Ground on Sunday night, who likes the talk, talk or doesn't like the talk. When I realize it's just something being known, it radically simplifies this moment. Object being known. In fact, this is like a Buddhist answer to somebody's philosophical question, like, what the hell's going on here? Object being known. Every moment of existence is never more complicated than an object of experience is being known. And if we emphasize the is being known, it really undermines the addiction we have to the idea of, we sort of have a fetish around objects like my house, and my opinion, and my body, 
you know, in your body. You know, we have all these sort of things that we put, bring a lot of self-importance to. But when we realize they're just objects or things being known, things get really simple. So when you emphasize that knowing, Tim, it gives the mind immunity from greed, anger, and delusion. Because from that perspective, greed, anger, and delusion don't make sense. They make sense when objects are real, more than what they actually are. Objects are only something being known. We said, wait a minute, there's a world here. That's a thought being known. But I'm touching something, it's hard. That's sensation being known. Right? Known in the mind. Oh, this is stupid. Well, that's an opinion being known. Right? So, it doesn't matter. And there are other ways to bring wisdom in. But the true recognition that object being known. So, in like in Burmese Buddhism, uh, this sort of insight meditation tradition, that's considered one of the first, you could say, earth-shaking insights that arise when the mind deeply sees that it's never more complicated than an object being known. And it's always that. No matter how meaningful or intricate or terrible or beautiful our life is, it's always an object being known object being known. And it's not meant to be dismissive. It's just meant to be honest. That's the way it is. There's an object being known, an object being known. Even really sublime thoughts like, hey, we're all in this together, or sense of kind of universal love, that's a feeling being known. An object of experience being known. Thanks, Tim. And it's 8.30, so we need to let go of the words. Just take a few moments, let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. Realizing that this is just this experience being known. Learning to better trust the way it is. Living in alignment with this. Thanks again everybody for coming tonight. It's always nice to be here together and to practice together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.